0: Turn to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, we are coming into the home stretch of Luke's gospel. We're going to look at chapter 23 today, we'll have to spend the next two weeks looking at Luke chapter 24 to finish up our study of Luke's gospel, and then from there we're going to go to an Old Testament book. Do you want to know what Old Testament book we're going to be looking at? I'm not telling you today, I might tell you next week. But uh, I'm excited about where we're going in the Old Testament. After Luke, we've had a we we might not know where we are after we close out Luke's gospel, but uh, be looking forward to how we're going to meet God in the Old Testament after we finish our time in Luke uh, in just a couple of weeks. This morning, we're going to handle Luke 23 in the same way we handle Luke 22. I'm going to summarize what we have read and what most of us are familiar with and have heard over the years of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' suffering on the cross, Jesus' death there and burial. And I'm just going to hit the high points. We're going to do a 30,000 feet view of Luke chapter 23, and then we're going to come back and and really focus in on a couple of verses there. I've broken it into eight different sections. We're going to introduce characters. I think that's a good way we can... See Luke chapter 23, because we meet one character after another character after another character. And the first character we meet is really a character. And he's found in verses 1 through 7, and he's Pilate. And I like to think of Pilate as this guy who uh, passes the buck. You know, he's the guy who passes the responsibility off to someone else. Because the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, and they present him to Pilate. And they start out accusing Jesus. I think this is interesting. They accuse Jesus of misleading our nation, our nation, like their nation and Pilate's nation are the same thing, Uh, when everybody knows that those Jews, deep down, were hating the fact that the Romans had conquered them and they were still thinking of themselves as Israelites. But they come to Pilate and they want to catch his attention, you know, so they, they mislead him by saying, this guy is misleading our nation, He's forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and we just read a few weeks ago exactly how Jesus handled that, didn't we? And he didn't tell them not to pay taxes to Caesar. He told them to render to Caesar what was Caesar's and to render to God what was God. So they just basically presented a lie to Pilate to try to get him on their team. They flatter him a little with, this is our nation, Pilate, and he's doing harm to our nation, Pilate. What are you going to do about it when Pilate doesn't take the bait? So then they get straight to the point. The real reason they're accusing him, he stirs up the people with his teaching. Well, Pilate learns that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction and it just so happened that Herod was in town, so he sends him over to Herod. He passes the buck to Herod, who's our second character in verses 8 through 12. Jesus comes before Herod and Herod is extremely happy for just a moment because the Jesus that he had been hearing about was finally before him and he was hoping to see some sort of miracle or some sort of sign, or something impressive, or something entertaining. And as I was just looking at this this morning, I thought, the 21st century Western culture is full of Herods. They want to go into the church, they want to see something entertaining. Give us the feels. Entertain us. Show us something that will impress us. And we spend our time trying to compete with I mean, Hollywood. We spend our time trying to to compete with some kind of pop singer and put on some sort of show and miss the reality that we're not here to impress any of you. We're not here to please any of you. We, are, we have an audience of one. And His name is Jesus. And we're not here to do signs and miracles and impress people or entertain people. We're here to point people to Christ. And Christ stands before Herod, and Herod's like, I hope I can see something entertaining. I hope I can see something impressive. I hope I can get my itch scratched. And he was greatly disappointed. And the moment he was disappointed, he did like a lot of people do when churches don't want to impress, impress him and entertain them. He turned on Jesus. He mocked him. He shamed him. He sent him back to Pilate. And then what's even funnier is Herod and Pilate, old enemies... Became friends on this day. Isn't it amazing how Jesus can take enemies and make them friends? He can do it in one of two ways. One way, he can regenerate the heart, save the soul, give them peace with God, and therefore peace with one another. Or he can do it like he did with Herod and Pilate, and a mutual hatred for a greater enemy will make allies out of lesser enemies. See, Pilate and Herod, and then we get to verse 13 to 23, and we meet the Jews. The spotlight is now on the Jews because Jesus shows back up to Pilate, and Pilate summons those chief priests, those rulers, and the people in, and he just tells them straight up, I found no fault in this man. I found no guilt in this man. Herod has found no guilt in this man. Let me just punish Jesus and turn him loose, but the Jews would not have it. Pilate kept pushing for his release, but they began to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And in other Gospels, we even hear them say something as unbelievable as, let his blood be on our hands, and not only our hands, but on our children's hands. Pilate still tries to talk sense to the Jews. but They're insistent. The Bible says, with loud voices they asked that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. Here's another sermon within a sermon. When we allow the loudest voices to prevail, Jesus often gets crucified. The Christian life is not made up of the loudest voices, the Christian life isn't even a democracy. Christian life is a theocracy where King Jesus is our master, our ruler, our Lord, our sovereign. And we can shout all we want. The Jews shouted and their voices prevailed. And Pilate said, as a man with no conviction, well, they're shouting loud, they're causing a stir, I'll just go with them. Then we meet Barabbas. Barabbas. Bar means son of. Abbas means father. Son of the father. Maybe he was just like his dad. I don't know. But he wasn't a good man. If you look back in verses 17 and 19, you find out that Pilate would release a prisoner this time of year. And the Jews are yelling, release for us Barabbas. And we find out there that Barabbas was in prison for insurrection. He's he's had an uprising. He's led an uprising. And he's been involved in an uprising and he's murdered. So the Jews would rather have a murderer than the Prince of Peace. They asked for Barabbas' release. And Pilate releases Barabbas, the man who has been in prison for insurrection and murder, And he delivers Jesus over to the Jews to do with as they see fit. So it's as if Barabbas and Jesus switch places on this day. Barabbas, the one guilty, switches places with the one who's innocent. Barabbas, the one who is in prison for murder, switches places with the one who's the prince of peace. Barabbas, who's the one in prison for insurrection trades places with the Prince of Peace, and Barabbas is set free, and who knows where he went. Probably racked back to his crew. And Jesus gets Barabbas' cross. Fifth characters. It's actually the fifth and the sixth, but we just combine them into two for you. Simon of Cyrene and daughters of Jerusalem. Verses 26 to 31. Look at verse 26. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time. However you want to look at it, Simon's walking through minding his own business. Here, buddy, carry this cross for this guy. So Simon of Cyrene, an innocent bystander, has to carry the cross. Don't you know that was a little bit nerve-wracking? That's like putting the electrodes on someone in the electric chair, inserting the lethal injection into someone, or putting the noose around someone's neck. He's he's carrying the cross. It's just got to be a little bit eerie. In verse 27, following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. And Jesus turns to these women and says, Daughters of Jerusalem... Stop weeping for me. Now I want you to just stop right there because in my mind I've always thought of these women as being Mary and Siloam and the other women who followed Jesus and they've been walking with Jesus. But most likely these are women that have been hired to mourn for the people who are being crucified. These are women who get paid to put on the black and to weep and to mourn and to carry on. So there's a crew of women, professional mourners, who are getting paid to weep for Jesus. And I want you to notice what Jesus said to them, and His answer to them, His response to them, indicates that these are most likely not His disciples, His women followers. He says in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Now let's just think back to what we saw just a couple of weeks ago about Jesus predicting the fall of Jerusalem and how He instructed His followers to respond when Jerusalem was surrounded to run to the hills to hide because everything was about to implode upon itself. He looks at these women and He gives one la- This has to be heavy on His mind because He gives one last warning. You need to weep for yourselves. You better hope you're barren you better hope you're not nursing because you're going to be crying out for the mountains to fall on you when you see what's coming because if Rome is this way right now, guess what it's going to be like in eighty 70? Six, we have common criminals. Jesus was not the only one being crucified that day. In verses 32 to 43, we see that two others, criminals, were being led away with him to be put to death with him. They're crucified, one on each side of Jesus, at the foot of Jesus' cross. The soldiers are casting lots. They're gambling for his robe. They're sneering at him. The soldiers are mocking him. And in verse 39, one of the criminals that was hanged there was hurling abuse at him too, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That makes sense to me. You hanging on that cross in excruciating pain. thats where we get our English word excruciating. It means out of the cross from crucifixion. He's in excruciating pain. He's like, if this guy's God, get us off of here. Get us out of here. Isn't that how we treat God? we like the bad, naughty criminal on the cross. And we walk around like, God, if you're God, get me out of this pickle. Get me out of this situation. But the other, in verse 40, answered and rebuked him. Imagine the state of mind and the stability of mind and the strength of mind. Necessary for someone that is nailed to a cross in excruciating pain, suffocating to death. To rebuke the other criminal and say, do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And as he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Seventh, there's a centurion in verses 44 to 49. An amazing thing happens at high noon, the sixth hour in the Jewish time frame was high noon. From noon until three, darkness falls over the whole land. And it's not just cloudy, it's dark. The veil of the temple is torn in two. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathes his last. Matthew says there was a great earthquake. And the centurion, who was at the feet of Jesus at the cross, goes from mocking and sneering and gambling to praising God, saying certainly this man was innocent. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, the centurion says, Surely this man was the Son of God. And then lastly, we see Joseph. In verses 50 to 56, Joseph, who was a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin, a a peer of Nicodemus, had not consented to Jesus' death. He went to Pilate, and he asked Pilate for the body. He took Jesus' body down. He wrapped it in a linen cloth. And he laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been laid. A lot of ground covered in that chapter, isn't there? Familiar story, isn't it? As I read through that chapter, and we see Pilate, and we see Herod, and we see the Jews, and we see Simon, of Cyrene, Barabbas, the daughters of Jerusalem, the centurion, the other criminals that are crucified with Jesus. And, and then Joseph come out of the shadows to put his reputation on the line to, to take Jesus' body and respectfully bury it. You know, as, as I read through that chapter, there's really one thing, and it's not a pleasant thing, I'll admit, but it's a thing we need to consider because the theme of this chapter is not be a convictional leader. Don't be like Pilate. The theme of this chapter is not don't be a miracle monger like Herod. Come to Jesus for who He is. The theme of this chapter is not the loudest voice shouldn't always win. Jesus is in charge. Don't be like the Jews and think that just because you shout loud you get your way. The theme of this chapter is not any of these things we've seen. They're all good things. They're all true things. But the theme of this chapter is really the wrath of Almighty God being poured out on Jesus for the sin of mankind. That's what this whole chapter is about. And I'm going to propose to you that if we remove the wrath of God the Father from Luke chapter 23, then we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. Because the whole chapter, actually, the whole New Testament, actually, the whole Bible leads up to this climax of the Father's wrath being unleashed, the Father's anger, the Father's judgment against sin being unleashed on Jesus. That's exactly what's happening when Jesus is hanging on the cross. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39 we find Jesus praying in the garden. Remember? He went a little beyond them, fell on His face, and prayed, saying what? My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Matthew 26, 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, Your will be done. And we see Jesus We see Jesus in agony, the Bible tells us. We see Jesus in such agony that He is sweating great drops of blood, which is a medical condition that happens very rarely in extremely stressful situations. Here is the Son of God stressed out. Have we ever seen Jesus stressed out? But we see Him stressed out here. Now, is He stressed out over the cross? Over having nails driven through His wrist? And through his feet, is he stressed out over being beaten, sneered at, mocked, tortured? Is he stressed out over what man can do to him? Listen, some 30,000 men had gone through this exact experience before Jesus, in Jesus' lifetime alone, and we don't read of any of them sweating great drops of blood. We see many of them like these two common criminals carrying their crosses and then communicating with one another on those crosses even in the midst of excruciating pain. So you mean to tell me that the son of almighty God is that afraid of a cross? The son of almighty God who created the tree that would be cut down to make that cross is that afraid? Of the cross. Mel Gibson's movie The Passion centered all around the physical suffering of Jesus and it absolutely missed the whole point. The whole point is the cup that Jesus was asking the Father to allow to pass from him was not the cup of the cross but the cup of God's wrath. In Revelation 14, We find out about those who receive the mark of the beast. Whatever all that means. We find out that person will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Okay, so here's a picture of the wrath of God. It is pictured as wine to be drunk. Which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. So when Jesus is praying in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He is referencing the cup of God's anger that contains the wine of God's wrath mixed full strength against sin. Is it any wonder he doesn't want to drink that cup? What do we know about the wrath of God? Maybe we Think he's overreacting What do we know about the wrath of God It's something we don't talk about much We don't preach about it much No TV preachers deal with it No best-selling books are written on it We don't want to read it We don't want to talk about it We don't want to deal with it What is the wrath of God? Let me just give you four basic truths That help us to understand the wrath of God Number one, God's wrath is frightful Consider Consider how dreadful the judgments of god are in this world in their little tastes the tornado sirens the tornado alarms go off and everybody gets them a glass of sweet tea and sits out on the porch and watches it that actually does happen in mississippi but most people quick funny story we had just bought a house we had some friends from california who lived about 15 minutes from us they had just had a storm shelter put in and uh we had just bought a house, and it was coming down. I mean, pouring tornado sirens going off. And I'm like, this is a really good time to check for leaks in this roof because it looks a little old. So I'm in the attic, like, looking with my flashlight, trying to find leaks. And the, and our friends from California or Texas, we're in our tornado shelter. Where are y'all at? And I'm like, well, currently I'm in my attic looking for leaks. So, yeah, everybody's not quite that, you know, filled with lunacy. But, you know, you get out of South Mississippi where it's a normal occurrence. The tornado sirens are just noisemakers to help you sleep at night. And most people... Most people run for cover, don't they? Think about when a hurricane's coming. People are boarding up their windows and they're traveling north and they're getting out of Dodge. Think about when an earthquake hits. The devastation and the fear that is involved. The the forest fires, when they begin to spread. Floods begin to rise. Famines come when sicknesses or pandemics hit. All of those things are a result of sin and they're just a little taste of God's wrath against sin. And those things generate fear. But they're just little tastes. So if those things generate fear in our hearts and fear in our lives and cause us to reorder the way we live and cause us to buy lots of toilet paper. Imagine how dreadful the full wrath of God must be. John Owen, Puritan pastor said, when a few drops... Or little sprinkling of wrath is so distressing and overbearing to the soul. How much it be, how must it be when God opens the floodgates and lets the mighty deluge of his wrath come pouring down upon men's guilty heads and brings in all his waves and billows upon their souls? God's wrath is frightful. God's wrath is not only frightful, but it is full. It's full. God's wrath is full. Jonathan Edwards said this It will be poured out upon the body. The body, which was so tender that it could not bear heat or cold, shall be tormented in the winepress of God's wrath. Have you ever thought about how delicate our bodies are? We can't handle the heat, we can't handle the cold, little discomfort. But that same body that can't bear heat or cold shall be tormented in the winepress of God's wrath. Those eyes which before could behold beautiful objects shall be tormented with the sights of devils. The ears which before were delighted with music shall be tormented with the hideous shrieks of the damned. The wrath of God shall seize upon the soul, the mind, the will, and emotions of a reprobate. The memory will be tormented to remember what means of grace have been abused. Let me define for you those means of grace, because some of you are going, huh, what are you you talking about? Here, Here is what he means. When your memory is tormented, to remember what means of grace have been abused, it's when you are suffering under the full wrath of God in hell, you will remember every time you set your Bible aside to make a new TikTok video to try to get some giggles. You will remember every time you pushed off being in prayer and Bible study, to scroll through Facebook for the next hour, to see posts from people who don't give a rip about you and don't care what you think about them. You'll be reminded of every time you decided you just didn't really feel like coming together to worship with the saints because you didn't like this or you didn't like that or you did like your sleep or you did like your sports or you did like your television program or you did like whatever you do like more than Jesus. You'll be reminded of every time You've pushed aside the normal means of grace for something in this world. It will torment you for all eternity. That's what Edwards is saying. The conscience will be tormented with self-accusations and there's not one part of our being that will be free from the wrath of God. Does that sound pleasant? Is this sermon going to get a lot of likes? But it's true. The wrath of God... It's frightful and it is full. And, the, and God's wrath is not only frightful and full, but it is forceful. There's no escaping it. In Revelation 14, 19, the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. When that angel swings his sickle, there will be no escaping it. There's no escaping the wrath of God. We may oppose God's ways. Hear me. We may oppose God's ways. Those are ancient. Those are outdated. Those are irrelevant. They don't really apply to the 21st century where we live. They don't really apply to my life where I live and the things that I need to do. And we may oppose God's ways, but you will not oppose his wrath. What are you going to do? You're going to avoid aging? How many of you have figured out how to avoid aging? You're going to avoid sickness? Forget age. You can die in your 30s. You're going to avoid death? Anybody here know how to avoid death? There is a 100% mortality rate on all mankind, right? You're going to die... You're going to stand before God and you will face His wrath and there will be no escaping. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 13. John says, I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. He's got the great, the small... Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them. There is no escape. God's wrath is forceful. It's coming for every person who's not born again. And God's wrath is final. The wrath of God is final. There's no appeals. There's no escape. It is eternal. It never, ever ends. In all the pains of this life, we can have hope of some relief. Give me a Tylenol. Give me morphine. Give me death. We've all seen that, haven't we? We've seen people, I just need some Advil or Tylenol. Okay, relief. Or, I'm suffering greatly, I just need morphine. Relief. Or I'm suffering greatly, just let me die. We've all seen that, haven't we? In all the pains of this life, we have hope for relief. But there, suffering will continue forever and ever and ever. There will be no such relief under the full wrath of God. In Revelation 14, 9 and 10, another angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name, you imagine with me how long it would take you to go to the Atlantic coast and scoop up a teaspoon of sand and walk all the way across the United States of America and dump that teaspoon of sand on the Pacific Coast beach and you walk back across the United States and get you another teaspoon and go back across the United States and drop it on the Pacific Coast Every as long as it would take you to empty the Atlantic coast with a teaspoon by walking across the U.S. onto the Pacific coast, that is one second of eternity. That's not even one second of eternity. The wrath of God is frightful. The wrath of God is full. The wrath of God is forceful and it is final. There's no escape. And that's just a pitiful human's attempt at trying to help us see how terrible the wrath of God is. And yet, we find in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 and 45, that at the sixth hour, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And we know from the other Gospels that Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father has turned His face away from His Son. Darkness has covered the land. Why? Because the wrath of God is being poured out upon Jesus. Jesus he is being made to drink the wine of God's wrath mixed full strength in the cup of his anger we're not talking about a few clouds rolling across the front of the sun we're talking about pitch black darkness that can be felt by all darkness at midday high noon until 3 3 p.m. Jesus is feeling the full weight of that wrath and the onlookers who are terrified are experiencing just the side effects We have non-smoking restaurants because people don't want to be affected by secondhand smoke. If you're so worried about secondhand smoke, imagine what happens when you are the first-hand smoker. It's got to be worse, right? And Jesus is first-hand wrath here. And everybody else is in the smoking section. And they're not inhaling the actual cigarette of God's wrath. They're getting the secondhand smoke, and it's enough to offend. It's enough to terrify. It's enough to cause them to tremble. It's enough for them to say, I want a a non-smoking section, somebody, but there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to go. Imagine three hours of this being poured out. Imagine Peter, who has just said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And now darkness is coming. Is it coming for me? I sure deserve it. Imagine Pilate, whose wife has said, I've been warned in a dream, don't mess with that man. I've washed my hands of him, and now it's black and dark. He's crucified this man. I wonder if Pilate said, Is this coming for me? He deserved it. The disciples have all scattered, left him, deserting him in his time of need. Is this this because of us? The soldiers have been mocking Him. They've been beating Him. They've been spitting on Him. They've been stripping Him. They've been gambling. They've been crucifying. Could this be because of me? The Jews have been plotting against Him and turning Him over to the Romans. And now, when the darkness comes and the earthquake hits, the Jews even go into town beating their breasts. Has this come for me? Barabbas, who should have been hanging on that very cross... Maybe he's wondering, is it coming for me? The darkness is over, taking us. God's wrath is coming for us. But no, no, it's not coming for them. It's coming for Jesus. The wrath of God is being poured out on His perfect Son. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Listen to Isaiah 53 and verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Father to crush Him. He is being crushed under the wrath of God. God the Father is giving His Son the hell that should have been given to all of them that day. And to all of us today. Listen to me, dear friend. You might have stolen from Jesus and betrayed Him like Judas. You may have denied Him like Peter, condemned Him like Pilate, deserted Him like the disciples, mocked Him like the soldiers, or just plain ignored Him like Barabbas. You might be the chief of sinners worthy of the wrath of God here today, but listen, the wrath that you deserve has been and can be taken by Jesus. That frightful, full, forceful, and final wrath can be taken by Jesus. Romans 5 and verse 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. What are we saved from? The wrath. Of God how are we saved from the wrath of God through him listen very carefully your sin will be paid for in one of two ways it will be paid for in you for all eternity as you suffer the wrath of God in a place called hell or It will be paid for in Jesus Christ on the cross. There are no other options. No other options. You can pay for it for all eternity in a place called hell as you suffer under the full, frightful, forceful and final wrath of God or it can be paid for in full by Jesus on the cross. How would you this morning prefer it to be paid for? How do you think God would prefer it to be paid for? The Bible says He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible says He does not delight in the death of the wicked. How do you think God would rather your sin be paid for? He would rather your sin be paid for just like your banker would rather you pay off your house. All at once and not in little payments over the long haul. William Bridge said, When the Lord Jesus Christ offered up Himself a sacrifice unto God the Father and had our sins laid upon Him. He did give more perfect satisfaction unto divine justice for our sins than if you and all of us have been damned in hell unto all eternity. For a creditor is more satisfied if his debt be paid him all down at once than if it be paid by the week. Romans 8, 1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation. No judgment, no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only can your sin be paid in full, but listen, you can be made a child of God. A joint heir with Jesus. Because in verse 45... It says that the veil of the temple was torn in two. Do you know what the veil of the temple did? The veil of the temple kept everyone out of the holy place except for the high priest. It kept the priests out. It kept the Jewish men out. It kept the Jewish women out. It kept the Gentiles out. And now that veil has been torn in two from top to bottom signifying that the high priest can go in, the priest can go in, the Jewish men can go in, the Jewish women can go in, and the Gentile men and women can go in equals born again, right with God, join heirs with Jesus. 2 Corinthians five twenty one says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Listen, Jesus Christ took the full wrath of God so that we don't have to suffer it. And He took His perfect righteousness and He put it upon us so that we can walk right into the very presence of Almighty God with confidence and boldness. Hebrews four sixteen, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace grace to help in time of need we can walk in in confidence not because of who we are but because of who Jesus Christ is not because of what we have done or not done but because of what Jesus Christ did he took the wrath of almighty God for us so that we don't have to take it and he lived the perfect sinless spotless righteous life that God requires of us so that we don't have to fear condemnation but we can approach the throne of God's grace and boldness that is goodness news Barabbas he took your cross and he set you free are you going to leave ignoring him today are you going to turn from your sin your insurrection and turn to God through faith and hope in what Jesus graciously and mercifully did for you Would you repent? Would you believe? Would you call upon His name? Listen, we're going to sing. Tom's going to come. We're going to sing now. And as we sing, if you need prayer, you need guidance, you need counsel, you need someone to talk to, grab somebody you trust. You come to this altar and pray. You can grab me or Andy on the front row and and we'll be glad to talk with you and pray with you if you need it. Let's stand, let's be thankful that Jesus took all of our punishment and that He's made a way for us to be set free from our sin and be made righteous on that cross. And if you need someone to pray with or talk with, you come now.